of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So that's, our, that's one of the passages we read as a closing benediction for our service. Um, and we're going to just spend today talking through that, uh, what this passage is and what it, what it uh, means, and hopefully dig in deeper into it and, and appreciate it more as, as a result. So what we're seeing today is pretty interesting. Actually, where Romans, I don't know how much you know about the book of Romans, but the book of Romans is probably... Uh, considered, at least in our, in our time, the best, uh, greatest book of the Bible in what it has accomplished to bring people to faith and to bring the church back to sound biblical theology and right doctrine. Uh, Romans was instrumental throughout, throughout all of the history of the church to get, uh, to get the church on track. And it's just an amazing book. It doesn't mean that it's better than all the others, of course, but I think most people would consider it one of the greats of the New Testament. Um, St. Augustine, who, which is what we call him now, but Augustine, um, back in the 300s, was brought to faith in Christ because of the book of Romans. He read a, a verse out of Romans and he became a Christian. Uh, and you can read his his whole life story. He records this in uh, the book Con- Confessions by Saint Augustine. It's a it's a classic work of of uh, literature, but it's also a, a autobiography of Augustine's conversion. He talks about how Romans was instrumental, and then Augustine went on to become one of the most important theologians of the church uh, in in the early years and early centuries of the church. Then you fast forward to the Reformation, and again, a guy named Martin Luther and a guy named John Calvin and other guys throughout the Reformation turned to Romans and found uh, the doctrines of the church that needed to be revisited. So it's, it's been used so importantly. And what, what you basically have in Romans is a, um, the first 11 chapters are basically Paul articulating the, the doctrines of the faith, the, the theology of the Christian life, what we know about God because he's revealed it to us. That's what theology is. It's what we know about God because of the Bible. And, and Romans unpacks the, the beauty of the gospel and the mystery of it and the amazing work that God does for us. And then in chapter 12 through 16, he turns to the kind of the practical way that that plays out in the church. And so in kind of those two broad categories, you have this benediction right here at the very end of chapter 11, sort of as a transition between the treaties of, of Christian theology in the first 11 chapters and then transitioning into the practice of these things. So, so, so it really is this. I think this is the key thing that we can take away is that our, our theology or what we believe or know about God because of the scriptures isn't meant to just simply stay up in our heads as an intellectual piece of information, but is always meant to move from our heads to our hearts in worship for God and in love for others. And so that is really the, the whole structure of Romans and the very, um, the, the very kind of transitional point in the book is where Paul just breaks out into this praise for God by saying, oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. So we'll unpack those verses, but 
I think before we do, we should, to, to really grow in our appreciation for why Paul says these things, we need to understand a, at least a flyover of what Romans as a whole is teaching. And Romans really can be broken down into about four sections before it gets to these verses that we're in today. Um, the first section is chapters one to three. And we're not going to read all of this. I'm just basically going to read a couple of uh, summary verses uh, in each of these sections just to give you the, the kind of overview. But chapters one to three of Romans starts with a bleak truth that we are sinful and that we are justly condemned by God because of our sin. Romans does not allow us to think that we are just inherently good. Uh, it infor informs us clearly that we have very, uh, very sinful hearts and a sinful nature and inclination that is not towards God in any positive way. And the summary verse for that whole section is Romans 3.23, which says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned, that's everybody, and have fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 1 to 3 uh, is not like a real upbeat, like happy kind of passage or section, but we need to get there first in order for us to appreciate what happens next, which is from, from the bleak truth of our sinfulness, Paul turns to Romans 4 and 5. In those chapters, he explains to us how we have been taken out of our sin into righteousness, taken away from our sin into right relationship with God by being justified through faith in Jesus Christ. That word justified is very important in the book of Romans and really the whole Bible, and it's to be declared righteous before God, not on the basis of our efforts or our work, but on the basis of Jesus Christ's work uh, in his sinless life and his death um, in the place of sinners and his resurrection. And so Romans 4 and 5 really brings us to that hope that we have that we're not just stuck in sin. We're not hopelessly lost. We're not hopelessly under judgment if we turn to Jesus Christ who became our righteousness for us and then declares us righteous on the merits of his. A good, good summary passage here is Romans 5, 6 through 11, which says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified, again declared righteous, by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So the good news of the gospel becomes clear here that we have moved from sin into justified, reconciled people with God because of what Christ has done for us in his death on the cross. Then, as we continue to move uh, very quickly in this buggy ride through Romans, you get to chapters 6 through 8, which teach us how the Christian life begins to grow in us or how we are sanctified. That's the, that's the word that's used. Sanctification 
uh, means that we're being made more and more like Jesus as we progress through life, as we've trusted in him, and, and sin begins to take uh, a backseat and, and begins to get killed more and more in our lives. Right? And so 6 through 8 really unpacks that for us. And, and summary verse of that, uh, there's so much that we could get into here, but Romans 6, 20 to 23 says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Meaning when you were outside of Christ, separated from Christ, you could do whatever you want as far as, as, far as sin was concerned. Um, you didn't have to worry about righteousness at all. But, Paul says, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things for which you are now ashamed? In other words, he's saying, what, what good were you getting out of being separated from God? The answer, he says, is for the end of those sinful things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, meaning that process of becoming like Jesus, and uh, sanctification and its end, the end goal of sanctification, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's showing us, again, just in that little snippet, and he continues to dig into this through chapter 7 and 8, but the snippet is this, that we are saved and we are being made to be fruitful people, to actually have worthy lives and and to grow in grace. And then finally, chapters 9 through 11, which will get us to our passage, Paul begins to address the issue of how his promises actually work in relation to the Jewish people and in relation to the Gentiles. And Paul says that the, the way that this, the promises of God work out is through his sovereign grace, his, his sovereignty choosing to save people from their sins. That, that God is not a failure because he has accomplished salvation for those whom he has worked his grace in, within. A summary of this would be Romans 10, 9 to 13 which says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scriptures say, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So basically, Paul just lays out for us this amazing truth that though we are sinners and rightly under judgment, Jesus came into the world to die for our sins. He brings us into reconciled relationship with God, which then puts us on a new trajectory of becoming more like Jesus. And ultimately, he lands the plane here with there is hope because God is at work and he is saving those who call upon his name. Amazing. So then you can understand maybe a little more why Paul at the end of chapter 11 breaks out in worship. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Well, let's just start to break those verses down together and we'll spend a little bit of time here and then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap, wrap up for lunch. Um, I think these, these, these three, three or four verses here are really broken down into two broad sections. 
I'm going to just categorize them as section number one is the humble amazement of a believing heart. The humble amazement of a believing heart. And the second uh, section will be the humble affirmation of a believing heart. So let's start with the first of these two categories, the humble amazement of a believing heart. It's in verses 33 and 34. I've read 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? In these two verses, Paul is expressing sheer amazement at the fact that God would do all of these things in salvation, in his grace for sinners. I don't, I, I don't think it's good for us to just pull these things out and just isolate them and, and separate them from the, from the broader whole, right? Paul is expressing astonishment, amazement, and just uh, is laying out how incredible it is that God would save sinners from their sins through Jesus. We, we read, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. So Paul is first expressing amazement at the knowledge and wisdom that God has. So let's unpack what those two things are. What's the difference between knowledge and wisdom? Well, knowledge is really just the gathering of information, right? It's, it's when you want to know something, you, you look up the information. You probably today we watch a YouTube video and we figure out what's happening, right? We learn some things from knowledge, but Knowledge is not the end goal. Wisdom is the end goal, right? Wisdom is knowing what to do with the knowledge we have. And so, uh, well, I I came across this quote from a guy from the 1700s, a a commentator named Albert Bengel, who put it this way. Wisdom directs all things to the best end. Knowledge knows the end. So wisdom is what's, what's taking the information and doing what's best with it to the end result. And what Paul is doing here is he's marveling at how deep and rich God's wisdom is, particularly as it relates to his work in salvation of bringing sinners into reconciled relationship with God and then making them put on this trajectory of of eternal life. That requires wisdom and knowledge and the depths of it that none of us ourselves possess. God knows these things, but he also knows what to do with these things. And so not only does God know, or did he know, I guess in some past tense way, that humanity needed to be saved, he also, which he obviously does know that, right? But he also knew what to do with that and how to bring about that salvation fully for us through Christ. He sends Jesus to the world to be our savior because God sees not only what is wrong, but he sees what to do to heal it. I think this is really helpful for us to think about in God's, uh, just who God is, that he is full of riches of wisdom and knowledge. What that means is that unlike us, God never looks around the world and goes, oh no, I don't know what to do here. None, none of us uh, worship this God who, who is like surprised by things or shocked by what's happening. 
He is nothing but the depth and riches of wisdom and knowledge. He knows what's happening in your world and in the world. He, he knows what to do with it and he is working all things according to his will. We have uh, the assurance of Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. The reason that all things, and all things include bad things too, from our vantage point, but the fact that all things can be, can be used for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose is because God knows the end of all things and he's working. Oops. Let me see if I got a connection problem here, probably. Okay, so we have this wisdom and knowledge that Paul is just astounded by. Moving on, though, we see uh, that, that one exclamation of, of amazement is not enough. He expresses a second. And, and he says it in verse 33, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Dwayne, you want to hand me the, uh, the handheld too, just in case here? Um, so how, uh, sorry, I lost my, I lost my point. So yeah, how uh, unsearchable his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Thank you, my friend. I'll switch. Um, he, he is, he's basically ex- expressing how incredibly far beyond God is from us. He is just, absolutely inscrutable. What does that mean? That's not a word you've probably ever used. Me neither. Inscrutable. Hang on, let me swap these out here. All right. Take that off. Okay, so inscrutable basically means, it's a a word that means you can't be fully understood. It can't be, uh, like the depth of it can't be plumbed. Uh, It is literally meaning untraceable. And so when, when Paul says that God's judgments and ways are inscrutable, he's saying that we have no way of fully understanding, fully comprehending what God's judgments and ways really are. Tracing God's ways in how he deals with his people through grace and fully wrapping our heads around that is a, a, an exercise in futility. It's, it's like trying to reach the bottom of the ocean in just your, your simple scuba gear. Like you're gonna get crushed under the weight uh, if you're not properly, right? So to try to plumb the depths of God's wisdom and knowledge and his ways and all these things is just, it's impossible for our, for our minds to conceive. In other words, God's methods don't conform to man's preconceptions. Right? We have our ideas, but God's ways don't conform to our ideas. Isaiah 55 tells us this, that God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, which is an expression of infinitely higher, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So God is, by nature, incomprehensible to us. This is one of the reasons, uh, or one of the reasons I should say for this, is because our experience as human beings, as sinners, 
who are not made with perfect knowledge, uh, our experience limits us. We can't really think fully in the categories beyond our range of experience or sensation. I, I was helped by this by an illustration that C.S. Lewis gives in his book, Miracles. Uh, in that, he, he gives the illustration of, uh, of a shellfish trying to explain to other shellfish what mankind is like. And of course, because they're living in their own experience as shellfish, he has to, they have to use you know, analogies that they can understand, their common lived experience. So the, first, so the shellfish says to the others, well, humans have no shell, and they're not attached to a rock, and they don't reside in water. So that's the best they can kind of grasp about humanity, right? So to help the first shellfish get this idea across, there's Lewis talks about other learned shellfish who show up like philosophers to try to help explain what the first shellfish is saying. And so at the end of the day, what they conclude about mankind is this, that mankind is a sort of amorphous jelly who has no shell, existing nowhere in particular because he's not on a rock, and he doesn't take any nourishment because there's no food to drift toward him. So the conclusion that they make is this, that humans are famished jelly existing in a dimensionless void. Well, obviously, that's not mankind, right? That's a terrible description of mankind. So, but again, Lewis is using this analogy to show us the, the limitations that we have as human beings to comprehend fully what is infinite. Uh, our language is just, it just falls short. Our language is incapable of fully communicating about a God who is above nature because like it or not, we're, we're in nature. We're stuck in this world. And so that's why the writers of Scripture are constantly using words like like to explain God to us. They, they're, they're using analogies very often to help us get the point. Uh, one example would be Revelation 4.3, where the apostle John says, and he who sat there on the throne had the appearance of Jasper. The appearance of Jasper. So if you can picture Jasper, you Google Jasper so you know what it looks like or whatever. Um, Jasper is kind of a mineral, and, and it's got multiple you know, colors and all these things, and it's, it's a pretty, pretty rock or whatever, whatever you want to call it. And so the appearance of the one who sat on the throne couldn't really be described in any other way than to compare it to something that we know on earth. This is how the Bible deals with this a lot. God is incomprehensible. But here's the good news. It doesn't mean we can't know anything about him. Just because he's incomprehensible doesn't mean we're hopeless to know nothing. Because the scriptures and nature themselves teach us things about God. In fact, Romans 1 Paul begins with this whole point that, that the created world screams that there's a creator. And so the world itself points us to God. The scriptures as God's divine revelation of himself to us point us to God. But most importantly of all, the way that we can know God is because God became one of us. He embodied himself 
in our experience. And so to go back to the shellfish analogy would be Jesus coming into the world as a man would be like Jesus coming into the world as a shellfish to save those shellfish. Right? He enters into their shell and their rock and, and the way they eat. Right? Jesus Christ, the creator of all, becomes one of the creatures in taking on humanity, living among us, eating and drinking and breathing and having a body. This, this is the amazing, uh, shocking thing about the Christian faith that our God became what we are so that we could become more like he is. So Paul is exclaiming this truth. He is he's bringing that reality out that there are a depth of riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, that his ways and judgments are inscrutable and unsearchable. We can't fully grasp them all, but we can know true things about God from his word, from, from his son, from his world. We're not hopeless, but we do need to have humility. That's why we have to have a humble amazement of who God is. The humility piece comes in by acknowledging, you know, I just can't know it all. And, and that's okay. We will one day know far more than we know now, but we won't know it all while we're here because we're limited. But here's, here's the thing. I want to leave you with this in your head, so you're not doubting that you can know anything at all. You can. You can know truly what God wants from you because he's told you what you need to know. He hasn't told you everything, but he's told us what we need to know. Okay, having said that, let's go on to the next section, which is the humble affirmation of a believing heart. Let's look at verse 35 and 36. Well, I'll read 34 through 36. It says, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul begins by expressing the, these, uh, well, he's actually quoting from Isaiah, and he says, who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? In other words, who, who among us can plunge into God's mind and tell him what he needs to know? The obvious answer is nobody. But then he goes on in verse 35 to say, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Well, n- no one can do that, right? In other words, we ought to have this humble affirmation in our hearts as believers, we ought to humbly affirm that everything we have is from God and not the other way around. We give God nothing. He gives us all things. We've never given God a gift or anything else for which we are owed repayment. Rather, we are the recipients of free, undeserved grace from God. Humility comes in by affirming that there is nothing in us that is deserving of God's grace. Go back to chapters 1 to 3. That's the point of Romans 1 to 3. We are not deserving of God's grace. We are, we are rightly under judgment. But that's not what we receive if we believe in Christ. 
even though we have nothing within us that is deserving of God's grace, we receive grace with, our, with all of our heart nonetheless. And the reason that we have nothing in ourselves that can be repaid is actually expressed in the next verse with the word for. So who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Well, the, the, the answer that is left unsaid is no one. Right? And the reason that no one can give a gift to God that he might be repaid is for, verse 36, or because from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The, the reason that we have nothing to give to God is because he has everything to give to us. All things are from him and through him and to him. So let's unpack that. From him are all things. This tells us that there was never a time uh, where God was not. And there was, there was a time when there was nothing except him. Mankind and all of the world, all of matter, everything that's made, seen and unseen, at one time did not exist, but God always existed. There was a time when there was no sun, and yet God dwelt in perfect light. There was a time when there was no earth, and yet God's throne stood fast and firm. There was a time when there was no heaven, yet God's glory was unbounded. God was complete. Everything came from him. And so everything came from God at one point. It originates in him. Everything we know today, ourselves and the world around us, at one time did not exist, came out of nothing, and God created it from his own voice. God created everything that we can see and not see, but God also created every idea that ever existed too. No one can suggest anything to God because there was no one at one time to suggest except for himself. The atomic structure of the atom came from God. Supernovas came from God. Pulsars came from God. Everything came from God. I, I've been uh, reading with my boys the, the Magician's Nephew, which is one of the Chronicles of Narnia books, and it's the book that Lewis kind of talks about how Narnia came into existence. And just a couple days ago, we were on the chapter where Aslan is creating Narnia, and, uh, you know, he goes through the process and the, the people that are there from our earth landed Narnia when it was just complete darkness. There was nothing there. And slowly but surely they're seeing things as Aslan is creating them. And Aslan is the kind of Jesus figure in the, in the story. And uh, Aslan's creating Narnia and uh, everything gets finished up. And one of, my, one of my boys says, but wait, where did Aslan come from? And, and I was like, oh boy, okay, here we go. How do we do this? Uh, right? That, like, everyone's asked that question. Well, if God is always there, where did he come from? How did he start? Was it, right? And there's just this sense in which our minds are blown when we think about this. 
just trying to explain, well, he was always there, right? C.S. Lewis is, like, he's like talking about Jesus here, and he's trying to help us understand Jesus was always there. He created all things. No one created Jesus. And, and it's like, just like, okay, let's, let's just go to sleep now, everybody. And we're, we're done. Uh, we're done, right? But it's, it's one of those deals that it's very hard. Everyone has asked these questions. And, and it's good to ask those questions, but we need to have humility to recognize that we can't fully understand them. So all things are from him. All things are also through him. Through him are all things, meaning that there was no raw material from which God went to work. We can create things out of things that already exist, but God created all things from nothing. He, he just spoke and they were, they were in existence. John chapter 1, verse 3 tells us, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Which is kind of a, a, a wordy way of saying, everything that's here is, be, is here because Jesus made it. Everything came from his power. All things are through him. He simply spoke, and the heavens came into existence. He speaks, and the world begins to turn on its axis. Furthermore, all things are to him. To him are all things. What does that mean? Well, it means that everything in the work of creation is to him. Because there, so because there was nothing but himself and nothing equal to himself, God's motive in creating all the world is for his own glory. And that, that might sound like a selfish thing, right? To think that God wants his glory. Uh, again, I'm going to go back to Lewis because he has a great analogy where sometimes when we think of God wanting glory, we, we envision in our head these, this naggy old woman who just wants to be complimented about everything. Is that how God lives and exists? Well, no. His glory always moves outward towards the good of his creation. But everything comes to him because he is the beginning and the end of all things. And his glory actually is what everyone is created to display. His glory is the highest aim. And there will be a day when all the sin in our lives is shed off of us and we will see that with clarity and we will recognize God for who he is. And the world will ring with his praises. So I, I've been emphasizing these things, the from him, through him, and to him, from the angle of creation. But I want you to hear this, that it just says in creation, so in salvation. Remember, that's the theme of Romans. It's salvation through Jesus. And so salvation comes from him. God ordained the plan. He ordained the power, the hour in which it was promised. He ordained the moment Jesus would come into the world. He determined what kind of death he would die. He, he determined when he would rise and ascend. God elects the heirs of salvation and calls them to eternal life. Salvation is from God. It's not from us. Salvation doesn't originate in us. It doesn't come out of us. It comes from him. Salvation is also through him. 
because through God came the prophets who told us of Jesus in the Old Testament. Through him, the Son was born. Through him came the atonement that saved us from our sins. Through him, the word of God is preached, and we believe the message of Jesus. Salvation is ultimately to him. Salvation that we have in Jesus rings out for his glory forever and ever. We are, as Paul says to the Ephesian church, we are the trophies of his grace. We are on display for all eternity to show off how great God is. We are recipients of grace. God is the recipient of glory. Our lives, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do for the glory of God. So these verses remind us of how great God is, how massive God is, how incredible and beyond us he is. And like Paul, we should stand amazed and marvel and, and be just overcome in some ways by the incomprehensible glory and grace of God. How do we do that? We do that by turning away from ourselves and turning towards God through Christ. And it's there that we will find our hope, our joy, our meaning, our purpose. Everything that we're looking for can be found in God through Jesus Christ. And as we, as we turn to him and away from ourselves, we will become more and more worshipers of God who find in ourselves then more and more joy. So like Paul, we should say, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the reminders of these these, these verses that you are just so beyond us, so much better than us, so bigger than us, and our small minds really cannot comprehend you fully. And yet, God, you have still, nonetheless, shown us what we need. You have given us your Son. You have given us your Word. We receive it and believe it, and we trust that you will take us to where you have us to go. Help us to live lives of humility before you in these things. And we pray that as we respond now in singing uh, songs of worship, that we would ring out your praises because you are so worthy of it. And it's for your glory we pray. Amen.